Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us today from wherever you are. Whether you attend one of our Denver locations or listen online, our hope is to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. And if you'd like to financially support our community and beyond as we set aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning. It's great to be together today. If you have your Bibles, you can flip to Luke chapter 2. If you don't, there should be a black Bible beneath the chair in front of you or around you. Today we are finishing up Luke chapter 2 before taking a little break for our season of Lent. If you, um, you can, we're, today we're reading Luke um, verses 41 through 52. You can follow along with me. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover, of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed, home, stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they are unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at, under, at his understanding and his questions. Er, yeah. um, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and obedient to them. But his mother treasured all the things in his, her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and statue in favor, favor of God and a man. Good job, buddy. Yeah. <clears throat> Be honest. Were you prepared to sit under the teaching of a teenager this morning? <laughs> I think you might have crushed it. Thanks, mm. buddy. Yeah. It's hot up here, huh? It is so hot. <laughs> here you go. Give it up for my friend McCord, please. We're going to be talking about 12-year-old Jesus in the temple and him teaching and participating. And I thought, there's no better way than to start with a teenager of our own reading some scripture and maybe freaking you out a little bit. I finally got that friend to come to church with me. Where is Michael? Who is this? <laughs> I'm bummed Michael's not here too. Uh, hey, good morning. My name is Nick Elio. I'm our family ministries pastor. Uh, I've been on staff for nearly 12 years and have the privilege of leading our family ministries, which is everything zero to 18. Uh, that predominantly for me and my sort of day in, day out work is with our Inc. students whom sit up front here. Um, wow, that was lame. Our Inc. students. <laughs> and, and I get to see oversee DCC kids and work with Maggie uh, in all that we do there. And so first thing, uh, if you're 
uh, just checking DCC out, if you haven't been with us for that long, if you're a parent, if you have a kiddo, if you're expecting, if you're an, if you're an uncle and an aunt and you don't know how to interact with your teenage nieces and nephews, um, I'd love to interact with you, uh, help you get connected to the family ministries here at DCC, and, uh, and yeah, I'll tell you what, uh, what that's all about. So with that said, uh, we are going to spend our time in Luke chapter 2 today. This is our last teaching uh, before we enter into a season of teaching around Lent, as mentioned by McCord. And uh, after that, uh, we will get back into Luke. So um, I think it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be interesting to get into this. Uh, but I do want to mention, before we pray and jump in, I just want to acknowledge where you may be this week. There's a lot happening in our world. And as we gather in the safety of this building and in our city, uh, un- uh, you know, not fearing what may be taking place outside literal bombs, missiles, invasion. Um, just want to hold that with you. Um, and the goal is not to address all of that, obviously, but um, that we come here to we come here to recovenant ourselves, to connect, to be together, so that we can, in doing so, go and continue to be a healing presence in our world. So let's pray, remind ourselves of that, and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to be together. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would quiet and calm our hearts and minds. That you give us peace that surpasses understanding. That you would be with our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world who may not be feeling peace at all. And we pray that in these next few moments together, uh, we may experience you. Uh, spend time in your word so that we can continue to be a healing presence in our world. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, here we go. Luke 2, 41 through 52, starting back in Luke, uh, starting back in 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. This is an annual thing that it's, Luke is making clear to us that Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, do every year. There would have been three main feasts, celebrations that would have taken place in Jerusalem that some would have traveled to, depending on how far away from Jerusalem you were. Uh, the first would have been uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, then you have Pentecost, and then Passover. So not everybody would have gone to every single one of those. Passover would have been the most important. Um, and again, Luke tells us that they went every year. This is not easy to do necessarily. This is not coming to church on Sunday and taking the 15 to 30 minutes it took you to get here. Nazareth was 80 or 90 miles away. And so this would have been a multiple day, uh, adventure is probably a strong word, probably didn't feel like that, excursion to get to Jerusalem, to spend the eight days uh, during the celebration and then, uh, and then to go home traveling back. It would have been required uh, by custom and law for Joseph to do so, but for Mary and Jesus to be there uh, essentially extra credit on some level, that they make it a big deal to go as a family, to participate in this way as devout Jewish believers. And this is them participating in customs and celebrations as a family. In Passover, it's worth reminding you, is a pretty intense uh, celebration in, in the sense of what it means for, for the Jewish people. Passover is celebrating the time when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt and were delivered by God 
and, and we're able to leave Egypt. So Passover comes from the story of the angel of death that comes through town and all of the Israelites mark their doors with blood of the lamb so that the angel of the Lord passes over their house and leaves them unharmed. So this very much is a celebration of liberation, of independence. So you can think about 4th of July for us. It's a pretty big deal around here. Imagine, however, doing that, having been liberated and now being reoccupied. Imagine what 4th of July would be like if we were back under the boot of somebody else and somehow they would still let us celebrate it. That, even that is sort of mind-blowing. The Romans allow this, this celebration of liberation and independence to take place. And it's interesting to remind ourselves that all the while that's happening in the shadow of the Roman occupation. So this is what they're doing there. They all go together. And in verse 43, it says, after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Jesus stays behind. So it's not a irresponsible parenting moment. This isn't a home alone situation where he wakes up and everybody's gone. Uh, this is Jesus making a decision to, to stay and to do something different. And this speaks to a couple of things. This speaks certainly to some of the freedom that he probably had at 12 years old, that they didn't need to see him all of the time. Um, but what's the number one rule if you get separated from your parents? What's the, what is the child supposed to do? Stay where you are. Stay where you are. McCord, you cannot raise your hand with the answers. <laughs> Stay where you are. Just a couple weeks ago, we're having ink uh, in this building downstairs in the ballroom, and all of our students are here, and my friend Cash, who's Dave's son, is downstairs with ink. Uh, he's with his friend Cape, and a couple of Wednesdays a month, Dave Newhousel is actually in the building for some of his own meetings, project renews, stuff like that. So he'll drive Cape to the building. Cape will come downstairs. Dave will work. And then at the end of our time, uh, Cape doesn't go back out the front door. He's like, hey, I'm going to go up to the offices to catch up with my dad. Makes total sense. So he and Cape go up the back stairs from the ballroom to go meet Dave. All the other Ink students leave. Me and the leaders are hanging out. Um, and a few minutes later, Cash and Cape come back down the set of stairs and are walking across the ballroom. I'm like, what are you guys doing? He's like, oh, my dad's, <laughs> my dad's parked out front. He thought we were going to come out the front door. I'm like, all right. A couple minutes later, Dave comes down the stairs. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm looking for the boys. I'm like, they just, he's like, oh, I'll go get them. Guess who comes back in the front door? Here comes Cape and Cash. I'm like, what is happening? Like, oh, my dad wasn't out there. I'm like, everybody stop. Somebody stop moving because we're just going to do this to finally get my phone out. I called Dave. I'm like, Dave, where are you? Don't move. I'm having to tell him the rule for how it's supposed to go. I was talking to another friend this week, and they were saying that they were playing hide and seek with their kids and that his son had figured out how to move after he had checked other spots. So he wasn't under the bed. So dad checked under the bed, leaves the room. Son figures out how to go back in, hides under the bed. So now he's moving around. It takes 30 minutes because he didn't stay where he was. <laughs> Jesus stays. Jesus is in the temple. He does this on purpose. Now, let's keep going. 44 and 45. Thinking that he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. They, again began, they then began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. So, again, this is a long way, 80 or 90 miles, depending on which route you take from Nazareth to Jerusalem, back and forth. 
there's two ways to go. You could have gone through uh, Samaria, which we know how uh, the Israelites feel about Samaritans. That's the shorter route, three or five days potentially. If you go the Jordan way, which is up through Jericho, it's four or six days. Um, and we see that in Jesus' ministry too, him making these, uh, these journeys along the, around the region. And so he's not with them. And again, this speaks to the freedom that 12-year-old Jesus is having and the type of situation that's, that's taking place. It would not have been like their nuclear family walking and they're like, where's Jesus? It could have been 100 people, family, friends, anybody who had been in Nazareth that was interested and wanting to go to Jerusalem for Passover. So it would have been a lot of people. And it would have been expected that Jesus could have been in or around that crew and they wouldn't have need to have seen him all day long. They could have caught back up with him at camp but they show up at camp that night, and he's not there. So after three days, in verse 46, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Three days later, they find him. Luke's foreshadowing here is not subtle. For three days, Jesus is gone, and on the third day, he's back. Spoiler alert, Jesus dies later, he comes back. It's been three days. Luke's foreshadowing shows up here in a bunch of ways. And before we get into what Jesus is doing, what his response is to Mary and Joseph, let's talk about what Mary and Joseph are experiencing and what happens to them over the course of these three days. Let's jump ahead just quickly to 48. It says, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Anxiously, Another translation might say frantic or panic. We were panicked looking for you. I'm going to tell a story in a minute, so I'm going to invite you to participate. Any parent willing to admit a time they lost their child just for a moment? Where were you, Melissa? How long? Three minutes? Not three days. <laughs> Who else? Where were you? Botanic Gardens. How long? Walkies. What is that at the Botanic Gardens? Is it a code red? Something. It's like Clue. With the mother in the bamboo forest with the missing child. Brett. At a Nuggets game. How long? Sarah McLean? Whew. That's a public place. If you're a parent, you know this feeling, and it doesn't have to be long when you turn around and it's that fast. That feeling of panic, anxiety. I lost my son just a couple of months ago. I found him. Um, <laughs> I have two little boys. Roman is seven. Oscar is five. Uh, this is just in November. My wife was out of town on her, one of her, the first trips she's taken uh, on her own since we've had the boys. And so I'm solo parenting. I'm dropping off at school. I'm picking up every day, doing the whole deal. And I go to pick the boys up at school. Uh, they go to the same school, ECE in first grade. And all their classrooms have external doors. And they're not that far apart from each other, just sort of around the corner. So I go to get Roman first. And I pick him up. And I, and I get in this conversation with his teacher. And they'll let Roman out of his classroom. But Oscar's an ECE, so I have to sign him out. So it's a whole thing. And so I'm talking to his teacher. I'm like, oh, I got I to go get Oscar. Let me go get him, because I know that I'm being the worst parent who's like last to pick their kid up. So I go get Oscar. And it's a beautiful day. It's like 60 degrees in November. And as is uh, usual, the, the boys want to play on the playground with their friends. So I set them up on the playground, put their backpacks on one of the benches. 
And I tell them what I'm doing, and we have the whole conversation that we have often. Stay on the playground. I mean, it's gated. This is our school. There's not a whole lot of places where we're this comfortable in the city. And um, I'm like, I'm just going right down to, to Roman's door. I'm going to go talk to Miss Lindsay. If you need anything, I'll be right there. They're like, yep, got it. They're, they do their thing. So I go talk to Miss Lindsay. A couple minutes goes by. And I'm sort of checking in visually. I can see Roman every now and then. He's taller. And finish up with Miss Lindsay and walk back up to the playground. I see Roman right away. And I don't see Oscar, but... I do classic parenting move. I ask Roman where Oscar is, and often he knows. Oh, I just saw him go down the side, or he just went over here. So I'm like, Roman, where's your brother? And it like hits him, sort of. He's like, I don't know. I'm like, that's fine. We're fine. Um, I'm like, when did you last see him? I think when we dropped our backpacks off. Yeah, Okay. Anxious, frantic, panic. Yeah, Mary. Uh, I'm, at like a, I'm like a two or a three. Scan the whole situation, the, the whole playground here. I don't see Oscar. He likes to be on this playground because he can't be on this playground during school because it's like an ECE play. So he must have gone to the ECE playground. It's just across the blacktop. It's over here by the basketball. It's like he's for sure over here. He's behind that tree. He's underneath the play thing. And... No, no, Oscar's not on the ECE playground, anxious, frantic, panic. It's like a five or a six. Now, I mean, it, he's in the bushes. They go to that thing and they run around. You can't see him. The bushes are tall, past the playground, over to the bushes. I'm sure he's in here. Oscar, Oscar. What an eight or nine. He's not in any of the places that I think he's going to be. And now I'm doing that thing. I've come up with all the things I'm going to say to all the people, the police and my wife and his brother, and I have no leads. I have no idea where he is. I don't know which direction he went. I know nothing. And now I'm literally screaming his name on the playground, and it finally hits me. There's one last place he could be. There's this, there's this little enclave. They put, did an addition on the school, and so there's a spot that like, sort of juts in, and there's a picnic table in there. And sometimes, sometimes they go over there, and they sort of play tag, and I sprint from there all the way to the other side of the schoolyard, and Oscar is happy as a clam. <laughs> playing tag. Oscar, what are you doing? I'm playing tag with Sterling. I'm like, yeah, I see that. I swoop him up, obviously, grab him, hold him. I want to be mad, as maybe you've experienced, but he did not do anything to me. He didn't know that that was happening. He didn't really do anything that I didn't tell him to do. He followed all the rules. I was the one that was preoccupied, and I didn't see where he went. Anxious, frantic, panic. I wonder if this story is in, this, is in the Bible just to remind us that even the mother of God lost Jesus for a minute. It's a little solidarity. Let's go back. Let's go back to verse 46, 47. What has Jesus been doing and what is his response to Mary and Joseph? 46, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Jesus is super chill. He's Oscar playing tag with Sterling. He's just like doing his thing. He has no idea how Mary has likely been feeling. And... He's just doing this thing that is participating, which is probably why we get this story. He is sitting, listening, teaching maybe with the other leaders 
other religious leaders of the time. And there's some debate around this at exactly what the, the proper translation should be. Is he listening? Is he participating? Is he sitting? Is he talking? Is he teaching? Is he leading? We don't really know. Uh, just in doing some research and, and Googling around for this teaching, I found some, some art. Uh, lots, of, lots of things have been depicted about Jesus' life over the years, obviously. So there's three pieces that I found that just felt like brought a little life to this that helped me have some sort of visual for what this might have looked like. So here it looks far more like he's maybe leading, right? Um, he's sort of sitting by himself. Everybody's looking on. The next one, also, he's sort of up where everybody may be sort of paying attention to him. This last one is my favorite. The colors here, not only the clothing, but Jesus isn't white because he wasn't, so that's helpful. Um, Just seeing buildings and trees and people, I don't know about you, but I do this thing sometimes where I think about Jesus and I think about like like how long ago this was, and sometimes I'm like, it's like, I'm like, like, Jesus is there with the velociraptors. Like it was like so long, like it was a Neanderthal or something. It was not that long ago. They had buildings and, clo- and clothes and they drank wine. Like it wasn't that long ago. So I love this picture. We're going to leave this up for a few minutes while we talk about this because it gives some life and some color and sets the stage a little bit for this scene of Jesus. There's continued foreshadowing here in Luke's gospel. It talks about that Regardless of what he's doing, everyone is amazed. There is astonishment throughout the temple, and that continues to take place. John 7, everybody's amazed by the things that Jesus says and does. And whatever the case is, whether he's speaking, teaching, sitting, whatever, it's clear that Jesus is extraordinary. He is doing things. He is participating in a way that would not have been normative. He's extraordinary. Now, Luke was writing to a a Greco-Roman audience. He was not writing to a Jewish audience. And it's important to know those things about um, who the original audience was, who the the author was writing to, because it helps color some of the examples they use, some of the things that they would have said, what it meant to the people at the time. So writing to this Greco-Roman audience, when he tells this story, when Luke tells this story about 12-year-old Jesus doing remarkable things, all of the lights on their dashboard would have been going off. Because at the time, anyone who goes on to do great things surely had a prodigious childhood. Surely this began to, way before they began to be an adult. And this is consistent with other myths, legends, stories, history that this audience would have known. Josephus writes about Samuel and about Moses being extraordinary children. Herodotus writes about Cyrus of Persia. Plutarch wrote about Alex the Great doing all sorts of amazing things, not just as adults when they either came into power or otherwise, but when they were little, when they were children, when they were in their teenage years. And so it's possible that this is why Luke includes this story. Because this is the only story that we have in our Bible, what's called the canon, in the books that that have been decided that go with our Bible. This is the only story that we get between Jesus' birth narrative and his adult ministry. In all four Gospels, this is the only one, Luke's the only one to include it. So maybe he's doing it for those reasons, but it's certainly not the only story about teenage Jesus. There are other stories in extra-biblical writings about teenage Jesus. Maybe you've heard of the Apocrypha. There are other books that at times are very helpful for history and context uh, of the things that were going on during the time and life of Jesus. 
though they weren't deemed appropriate or consistent to be included, it's interesting to talk about them for sure. There's a story where teenage Jesus uh, molds birds out of clay and then breathes on them and brings them to life and animates them and they fly away. There's another story where him and Joseph are, are working on some sort of house project. They're working with lumber and they cut a board and it's too short. And so Jesus stretches it to match the other length. There's another story where his brother James gets bitten by a viper and it says he's about to die. And Jesus comes over and blows air, spirit, breath, pneuma onto the bite and heals James. And as that happens, the snake bursts. There's another story where a kid falls off a roof and dies. Jesus comes over and brings him back to life. Teenage Jesus, I should say. It's worth mentioning in that last story that he does get accused of pushing the kid off the roof. So if you solve a problem that you created, I don't know where that fits in. Feels a little less Harry Potter and a little more Tom Riddle to me, but... Jesus is extraordinary. What would have parenting teenage Jesus been like? I mean, it's likely that he was a pretty big know-it-all, thought he was God's gift to the world, like most of you. Amanda did a teaching a couple weeks back. She was teaching on uh, from Luke chapter 1 on the... Magnificat, Mary's song, and she did a lot of incredible work on bringing up and talking about the humanity of Mary and all the things that Mary likely would have gone through, from breastfeeding to soothing a crying baby to all these things. I wonder how hard it would have been to get Jesus to take a bath. Would that have been a weird point of contention for Mary and Jesus It says in the, the verses that Michael taught on last week, right before our section here, and then at the end of where we're going to finish in Luke 2, that, that Jesus grew in stature and in wisdom. You can put Jesus' butt away. <laughs> um, it says he grows in wisdom. Jesus did not come out fully formed. It's not a boss baby situation where he's just like walking around with a briefcase ready to go as soon as he, as soon as he arrives. Jesus was like other teenagers. Jesus would have had to experience all of the same things that you did as a teenager and that our teenagers today are navigating. Verse 49. Jesus says, these are the first words of Jesus in, in Luke's gospel. Why did you search? Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? It seems that from the very beginning of Jesus' life, he has this annoying habit of answering questions with a question. It's so obnoxious as a parent. No, I'm asking, I'm asking the questions around here. Where have you been? Why did you do this to us? Jesus is oblivious to his parents' stress. And again, this speaks to the fact that he thought he could do this. Why were you searching for me? I, must, I was here in my father's house. He must have had a real sense that that this was somewhat in the parameters of what he was allowed to do. This is Oscar not being where I thought he was going to be, but he didn't 
technically break any of the rules that I set out for him. Don't leave the playground. Don't go outside the gate. All the stuff that I set up, he didn't do anything wrong. Is Jesus beginning to be a bit more independent? Is he beginning to take his faith and make it real for him? Culturally, we know that he's on the brink of adulthood. It says that he's 12. By 13, he would have been considered an adult. This is another one of those probably hard-to-be-mad-at-your-kid moments. Isn't this what we want for our kids? Don't we want our kids to begin to take on responsibility and ownership? Don't we want them to want to be at church? Be so mad. Where have you been? I've been at, like, youth group. I'm like, oh, fine. <laughs> Tell me when you go to youth group. That would be helpful. This is what we want for our kids. This is what we want for your kids at DCC. Under the banner of of DCC Family Ministries, both Inc. and DCC Kids, we want to create space that your children want to be. Obviously, if you're here and your children are downstairs, you are having more of a say about that likely than they are. But if they were hating it, I promise you would not come back. Our Inc. students, on the other hand, are, are here both this morning and on Wednesday nights of their own volition. They want to be a part of the time that we are spending. We say a lot about our ink students. We don't want to teach our ink students what to think. We want to help our teenagers learn how to think, how to think about the Bible, how to ask good questions, how to consider what their faith might mean for them. This is what we want for our kids. We go as far to create some roles that we want you as parents to be able to play. When, when your kids are little, when, they're in DC, when you're in a DCC kids category, we want to help you to be the primary spiritual voice in the lives of your kids. We want you to set the tone. We want you to be the pace car for the things that are happening. It says that Mary and Joseph went to Jerusalem every year for Passover. What do we know about Jesus? Later on, we know that he goes to Passover every year. There are all sorts of reasons why he likely does that, but it's also modeled for him by his family of origin. Mary and Joseph set the tone that this is an important thing that we do. They were the primary spiritual voice in the lives of their kids in that moment. When you move into a phase where you are parenting teenagers, we want you to figure out how to be an essential spiritual influence. An essential spiritual influence. That's not a downgrade from being a primary spiritual voice, but, but it shifts. Now there are other people that are going to get to have an influence on the life of your teenager, and they're going to do some things that are going to push some boundaries, that are going to ask some questions, that are going to challenge some of the things that you may have set up for them. Jesus' response, why were you looking for me? And in verse 49, I must be in my father's house. The word here in the Greek is not casual, not like I must get groceries later today or we're not going to have food or I have to go to Trader Joe's. This word must is, is far more about a calling, about a destiny. I I'm compelled to do this in my bones. Two chapters from now in Luke 4 43, Luke uses, rather, Jesus uses the same word, saying that he must proclaim the kingdom because it was, quote, why I was sent. He has to. It's part of who he is and what he's supposed to be doing. It seems that at 12 years old, Jesus is beginning to get it. He's beginning to understand what he has to do, what he was sent to do. And it seems he's beginning to understand the special relationship that he has with God. 
I don't think this is a coincidence. I think this is very, very specific. Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? No, your father and I have been searching for you. Now I know I'm in my father's house. I don't think this is Jesus taking the opportunity to say, you're not my dad. I think this is him speaking to the special relationship that he has with God. He understands what he's about to do and who he's starting to become. That's not a, a casual thing to say either. This is, this is blasphemy. In John 10, this saying, saying something like this about your relationship with God is the thing that almost gets him stoned, killed. Again, Jesus is not fully formed in this story. He's 12-year-old Jesus. But based on a number of these things, it's clear that he's starting to get it. And this is the age where teenagers start to get it. For him to be doing this at this time in his life was developmentally appropriate. And now we would say there's something about stages of faith development. These are the things that our teenagers are supposed to do. So much of what we do at Inc. with our teenagers at our church is informed by where teenagers are at in this stage of life that they find themselves in. For all of our Inc. students or for all the teenagers that you know in your life, they are supposed to be differentiating from their families. They're supposed to be doing things that are pushing boundaries, that are testing the limits, that are doing things differently than the way their family and family of origin system told them to do it. Why we're surprised when teenagers act like this blows my mind. They're supposed to be doing this. We want them to do this in so many ways. They're supposed to test boundaries. They're supposed to say, hey, travel with the group, be together, we'll see you at camp. Maybe not stay behind. Hey, that's, not, that's a little far. That's a little far out than what we wanted you to do. But they're going to push against all the boundaries that we set for them. They're supposed to be. We want them to be discovering passions and talents and gifts and figuring things out for themselves, figuring out who they are and what they care about and what they want to do. They're supposed to be trying on different identities, dyeing their hair, getting a piercing, not tattoos, not yet, too soon. This is a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do moment. <laughs> They're supposed to do that stuff. Are you okay with the teenagers in your life showing up with a different color hair just because? Or is it like, oh, why did they do this? Because they got to try some stuff, man. They got to see what happens. They got to see where they fit in. They got to see how people respond to the things that they're doing because they want what we all want, which is to belong somewhere and to find out who our people are. They're supposed to figure out relationships. They're supposed to date. They're supposed to have a crush. And while not everyone is going to do this and not everyone needs to do this, they need to be able to consider, am I gay? Am I straight? Who am I attracted to? What do I actually understand about myself? And for too long, the world has told people that you can't actually figure that out. There's one way to do this. And while we get to sit in Denver in a fairly liberal place and be in an inclusive LGBTQ community, there are places in the world where that's not happening. There's things happening in Texas right now that are trying to prevent teenagers and kids and parents from being who they are. They're supposed to be doing that. We want our teenagers to have these moments, and it should be reassuring to all of us that Jesus knows what that feels like. Verse 50. 
Jesus says, why are you searching for me? Didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? Verse 50, they did not understand what he was saying to them. Mary and Joseph didn't understand. Classic mom and dad, you don't get it. (laughs) Just understand me. Don't you understand what I'm doing? Every argument that we have with our teenagers in this stage of life is so painfully obvious to the teenager, and it feels like the parent is missing it. Or the parent feels like it's so painfully obvious to them, and it feels like their teenager is missing it. Again, it's good to know. The mother of God had that same experience. But here's what's interesting about Mary's response. It says she didn't understand. Jesus ends up going home with them, but it also says in verse 51 that his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Now, despite how this language sounds, sounds a little, uh, a little emotional. She treasured this moment. I don't know if she treasured this. My mom says stuff like this. It made my heart so happy. My mom's here. I don't think that's what's actually happening in this moment. I think Luke is stressing Mary's continued search for understanding. A better translation would be that Mary continued to ponder. Mary didn't write Jesus off. She didn't go, you're 12, you don't get it, you don't know how it feels. Luke includes this. Mary continued to ponder this. She didn't understand. She didn't know what was happening. She didn't know all the things that were going on in the life of her firstborn, but... Man, how often do we do that as parents, as friends, as partners? When something's so painfully obvious to us and it's, it's seemingly missed on the other person and we just write them off as being wrong or, or younger than us, immature, not as smart. Are we actually people who continue to ponder? I don't, under, I, I don't understand why we're at such odds around this, but I got I to gotta keep thinking about that. Next time you're in an argument, just tell somebody, I'm going to treasure this in my heart. <laughs> It'll throw them off a little bit too, but you know, we know what we mean. Needless to say, it says that Jesus is obedient. Despite all the things that Jesus is accused of over the course of his life, hanging out with prostitutes, sinners, being a drunk, from, from the beginning, he is obedient. He's a moral man who does the right thing. And in verse 52, it says... Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor and in favor rather with God and man. Jesus grew in stature. Of course he did. He continues to grow up. He continues to get taller and bigger and stronger. But two other things are important. Jesus continued to grow in wisdom. Jesus was not fully formed. Jesus had not arrived. He had more to learn, more to figure out. And it says he can continue to grow in favor with God and other people. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Are you continuing to grow in favor of other people? Do more people like you now than they did in college? Are you getting nicer? Is it, does it feel like it's getting harder to be nice to people? Does that say more about you or maybe them? Are we growing? It says Jesus grows in wisdom. We're followers of Jesus. We're supposed to be living the life that he models for us. Are you growing? How are you growing? Is it just this? If you're coming to church on Sundays, that's great. We love that you're here. We want you to participate. We want you to be here. But we also want you to explore and to participate in the life of Jesus. We want you to take a next step. We want you to continue to grow. 
Are you coming on Wednesday to Ash Wednesday service? Maybe after the gathering, you're going to go talk to Becca at the participate area and figure out how to jump into a Lent group. Maybe you're on the waiting list to be part of the next peacemaking pathway with Dave and Amanda and Becca. Maybe you need a mentor. Maybe you need to volunteer somewhere. Maybe you need to participate in that way. Spend two Sundays a month downstairs with DCC kids or talk to me about Inc. or just hang out and, and serve coffee to people as they come in. What is your next step for growing? We have to continue to grow. Jesus has not arrived. We have not arrived. I hope that whatever that next step is for you, that you take the opportunity and come chat with us. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time, the ability again to be together, to worship, to reflect, to consider. And uh, Lord, wherever we are at today, whatever it is that may feel helpful, challenging, uh, inviting to us, I just pray that you, uh, you invite us and lead us to take that next step, to continue to grow, whether it be in our parenting, whether it be in our our teenage journey, whether it be in uh, misunderstanding people, that we would be a people who are committed to growth, to exploring and participating in the life of your son Jesus so that we can continue to be a healing presence in our world. We pray in your son's name. Amen.